Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my pleasure to introduce Sylvia Brownrigg. She is uh, a Californian uh, born in, uh, in uh, the peninsula. One, both Mountain View and Los Altos have claimed you, so I'm not sure which is the case, and grew up partly in England, and as a writer has lived and written in both, in both uh, London and the United States. Um, she went to Yale as an undergraduate and then to, did, and to graduate school in fiction, I guess, at Johns Hopkins, and is the author of four books of stories, uh, four novels and a book of stories. The, the chronological order is her first book, The Metaphysical Touch, which is the one that's not there, is, was published in 1999. Uh, a book of her stories, Ten Women Who Shook the World, in 2000, and then the books that are there, Pages for You, 2002, The Delivery Room, 2006, and A Morality Tale, 2008. She's also written criticism uh, for um, uh, Salon, for The Guardian, for the LA Times, uh, wonderful uh, reviews, which are on her website, a a terrific review of... uh, Ian McEwan's Chessel Beach, which um, she, what the, one of the virtues of her being, having lived among the English is that, that she doesn't write criticism like they do, but she quotes beautifully from, for example, the, the critic, the English critic who described Ian uh, McEwan's uh, novellas as being nasty British and short. Uh, 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 she, uh, I, I, she wrote wonderfully about that book and wonderfully about one of a writer who's a secret favorite of mine, Sybil Bedford, who's writing a bit uh, hers resembles, I think. The other writers I've seen her compared to, and, and she's in the reviews and quote and, and uh, testimonies to her work have come from some of the best contemporary writers like Michael Shaban and Claire Massoud. Um, I've seen her compared to uh, Jean Rhys and to Turgenev, and I thought that Turgenev was really quite wonderful company and pretty accurate as a comparison for, at least in the novel that I've read, the, the purity of the storytelling and the sense of what to leave out and the way that it's psychologically very alive and makes a kind of music at the same time. Uh, a morality tale is, um, like Chesil Beach, a very un- simple book in a way, a marriage in a place that feels like it's in California somewhere, um, is, uh, has gotten on automatic pilot. Um, the, the husband um, is busy and driven. The, they're in that stage of family life I remember very well, which has almost entirely to do with who's making the babysitting arrangement, who's picking up who, when, and in the in the midst of this, uh, the the uh, wife uh, starts to have pleasantly romantic, harmless fantasies about someone who comes into her life um, from time to time, 
and and she comes to look forward to it. And um, the novel calls itself a morality tale. It is a morality tale. And I thought I thought this is not a promising premise. I've been here before, and the accuracy, humor, fierceness of the analysis of of our everyday states of mind and the way we hide things from ourselves in our own consciences is done with... Then at a certain point, 40 pages in, you just say, oh, this is an amazing writer and just track it out to the end. I'm so glad she's here tonight. Welcome, Sylvia Brownrigg. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and um, thank you very much for the invitation to be part of this series. I know you've had some wonderful writers here already, some of whom are in the audience, Cornelia and um, Nixon, and that you have other wonderful writers to come, so I'm very glad to be here. Um, uh, the, uh, the Mountain View, Los Altos question, <laughs> I grew up in Los Altos, but was born in Mountain View, and when I was living in London, I thought... Mountain View sounded rather... <laughs> I thought it was sort of poetic. My mother keeps trying to get me to change it back to Los Altos. Um, uh, actually, um, it's been a, a curious year for me publication-wise. Um, as Bob said, The Delivery Room is a novel that I wrote a couple of years ago, but it was actually just published here in the States, and so I hope it's all right with everybody in the audience. I, I actually thought I would read from both books. Um, uh, it, it is a strange... As I say, it's been a strange year because both books in this country were published in the last six months. Um, and there, I, I was at a, a book-selling event a couple of months ago in which there were sort of stacks of both that I was signing and giving away to people who were there. And people would come up to the table and say, well, which one should I read? Um, and... Um, uh, although I don't always approve of this analogy, um, it is a bit like somebody saying, which is your favorite child, you know? <laughs> and um, and uh, the minute you sort of... I mean, these are, so these are the two novels that were published this year, Morality Tale and The Delivery Room. And the minute you sort of say, well, this is the, the sort of funnier one that's more contemporary, that's set, you know, in California, and then you feel like, but, but this, this one is more complex, and it's got a broader range of characters and more complicated themes... Um, so um, uh, I think I will read from both tonight <laughs> with your, with your um, indulgence and I think I, um, on the principle of you know, leave them laughing I'll, I'll, I'll work up to the comedy and I'll start with the, um, the London novel um, which is The Delivery Room um, and I lived in London through much of the 90s and the book is set in London um, in 19, late 1998 up to 1999. Um, and the main character is a, a therapist named Mira Braverman. Um, and one of my main interests in the novel was, was in um, depicting the therapist-patient relation and looking at patients from the perspective of the therapist and then turning that around and looking at the therapist from the patient's point of view. So I'll read a few sections that give you a sense of that change in perspective. Um, one of the things which sort of picks up on what Bob was saying actually about morality tale too is that one of the things I was interested in exploring in this book was the gap between how we see ourselves and how we are seen. Um, and the thing to know about Mira Braverman is that she's a Serb living in London um, in the late, as I say, in the late 90s um, after the worst of the Bosnian conflict but in the approach to 
the outbreak of conflict in Kosovo and the NATO bombing. Um, so I think that's enough uh, introduction, probably. Um, she's married to an English academic named Peter, and I will read a little bit about him, too, I think. So she has four patients, and I'll read. Um, one of them is the aristocrat, a rather well-to-do Englishwoman. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit from one of the aristocrats' session to start. And you'll find through this passage at one point the perspective changes into Mira's perspective. It was not the source of shame it had been once. There would have been a time not that long ago, ten years, a bit more, when to reveal such a thing to anybody would have been tantamount to declaring you were certifiable, one small step away from the asylum. It was seen at the very least as a rank admission of failure. Now, though, the country had softened, had Americanized, she supposed. Caroline had not told many of her friends that she went, just Eleanor, who knew everything. But Mummy knew, of course, and had been quite sweet about it. She was modern, actually, her mother, in spite of appearances. She could say to Caroline, I'm sure the therapist must be helpful about that, naturally, easily, as if she thought nothing of pouring out one's most humiliating secrets to an Eastern European woman with a Cold War accent in a soup-scented flat in Camden Town. Mummy was a good sport, more comfortable it sometimes seemed than Caroline was herself with the presence of Mira in her week. Olivia, or Sebastian, or Cosmo, uh, this is a character who has been uh, engaged in fertility treatments for a while and is imagining her baby that she might have. There had been a time when Caroline thought only of having a daughter. She had no intention of having a son, Boys were so noisy and dirty, and even if they weren't, like Hugo, they had other monstrous qualities. No loyalty or decency or capacity to listen. It was always them and their concerns and their discussions of God knows what. Money, politics, as if it mattered, computers. Um, But recently, to appease the gods, not that Caroline believed exactly, she had decided quite clearly that she did not mind if it was a girl or a boy. She would welcome a boy, too. She was open-minded. Did they hear that, the fickle gods of fertility? She would welcome a boy. She would welcome triplets. She wanted a child. She needed a child. She wanted, please, someone, please, God, please, Dr. Beach, please, Mira. She wanted someone to hold. And yet, as she pulled up in the Range Rover, Caroline did feel some shame. Parking across the road from the dreary 60s mansion block to see Mira, she felt, as she often did, that there must be something wrong with her to be making these journeys a year on. A year on from their near divorce, and she was still driving to Camden Town one morning a week to sit in a room staring at some odd chinese abstraction on the wall, tell horrible stories about Hugo, and issue increasingly distressed bulletins about their failure to have a baby. She was beginning to feel rather ashamed about having not yet sorted it out. All right, a therapist, perhaps for a small amount of time, just to get you through a rough patch. Marriage not exactly what one had hoped for, family not taking shape as it might. But now, surely, by now, she should have managed to pull herself together, shouldn't she? What good was it to talk? There was some shame in the other, too, of course, but Caroline had got over that. IVF. Like the initials of some splinter terrorist group, the Infertility Victory Front. 
waging a busy war against the uncooperative sperm and eggs. They were quite open about it, she and Hugo, or had been in the beginning when they were sure it would work. Bacon, sperm, eggs, and sperm, Hugo had joked at dinners. That was how they'd been at the beginning. It had seemed science fictional and almost absurd, a medical gimmick. And they were young-ish and thought it bound to work. It had for various people they knew. Test tube babies. There were hundreds of them around these days. That phrase, test tube babies, gone now. She remembered it from her childhood. Seemed far more direct and graphic than the euphemistic IVF. How old had she been when that first one was in the news? A teenager? The newspapers were full of it. The first test tube baby. It made you think of Bunsen burners and small glass beakers and other antiquated items of equipment in Miss Bellhouse's chemistry class at school. Those funny green aprons they wore for lab work, which might or might not involve Petri dishes. Now, girls, Miss Bellhouse and her commanding troops gathering Bray, today we will be combining cadmium and liquid hydrogen to make test tube babies. Organize yourselves in pairs, please. Any questions? This will be on the exam, so you'd best pay attention. Please write up the results for prep and explain whether you made a boy or a girl and how. And please name the babies as you're heading. Do use a ruler for underlining. I can't bear wobbly lines on the page. Olivia, or Sebastian, or Cosmo. Nothing too silly, please, girls. Do stay away from Flavia or Bertrand. Caroline sighed. She hated to be early, that pathetic minute standing outside the mansion block door like a tradesman selling magazines, or schoolboys raising money for a half-term trip to the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia again now, don't forget. Hugo rolled his eyes in utter exasperation when Caroline issued a, some, a cretinism like that. There were times you could see him literally seething with embarrassment to hear her speak. She waited till it was five minutes past the hour, rang the bell, and tripped on in. And back to the aristocrat. A long neck, spidery limbs, mouth wide and imperious. Not to Mira's eyes attractive. Mira found the fashionable thinness anemic and precisely did not associate it with those feminine virtues to be resisted or succumbed to. The desire to feed and nurture, the ability to bear children, the offering of oneself as pillow and solace to men and to children and to those in distress. Thin people seemed to Mira uncomfortable. Who would want to embrace them? Mira accepted that this view set her drastically outside of this culture and its values, its images of beauty, but she could not feel otherwise. She did not consider herself beautiful, of course, simply because she was plump, though she knew that her plumpness was an integral source of Peter's adoration. She'd had a haunting, round-eyed look when she was younger that had been called striking, but as she aged, she had become merely wise-looking. Yet she found it hard to see the aristocrat as beautiful either. Other people apparently did or had. The past few years of Hugo's infidelities had keened the edge of the aristocrat's figure and threatened to turn her thinness into an unhappy, spindly spinsterdom. If you want to have children, Mira sometimes wanted to say to the woman, in simple terms, in her own tongue, no prevarications, no circumlocutions, you should eat. Eat. Make room in yourself to give the child a home. If your body feels ready for children rather than fashion, perhaps it will understand its new purpose. If Mira could have rewritten the rules for these measured, deliberate exchanges, as she occasionally wished to do, she would first have fed the aristocrat. 
started each session with a hot cup of soup, a chicken base, probably, as chicken broth solves everything, and dumplings to give the lean woman some softness and shape. Good morning, the aristocrat began, and good morning, Mira replied, awaiting her patient's first significant words, the ones that would launch them into an exchange they had both agreed to that Mira would be paid for, in which each would attempt to carve out some truths of the kind not found in ordinary conversation. And I wanted to read um, a short section about what it is for Mira to be a Serb at this time. Uh, so I'll just read a brief passage about that. It was so strange to be hated. Mira had acquired the art of it only gradually. I am not that, she wanted to say about Milosevic, and even more fervently, we are not them, the shellers, the rapists, the drivers from homes. But to say it would be an absurdity. If you are not them, who is? How could one person an expatriate, moreover, fight against the torrent of images and information that did, in some measure, she was loath to believe it, capture some kind of Serbia, some mutation her country had become. Yes, there had always been brutes and bigots and idiots in her country, and there always would be. You, England, are not immune. You have been colonizers. Don't pretend your hands are clean. But Serbians generally, the people she loved and knew, her people, her family, the, the nation that was hers, even if she had left it, it was not that. She wanted to say, we are a proud, good people. We are singers and poets, drinkers and joke tellers. We've been hurt, bombed, and bruised, and yet we have survived with our God and our church and our few fabulous visionaries. What was the use? It was easier to keep quiet. Not with Peter, of course. Peter's uncle, a writer, had known Rebecca West, and West had loved the Serbs. People had then. Croats were fa fascists, that much was understood. After the Second World War, the Croats were recognized as an unpleasant bunch who had taken the wrong side. And some people she knew here kept some hope for Yugoslavia. Their refugee friends, Warsaw Magdas and Berlin Evas, who had known well enough the death hand of Hitler and had a native sympathy for Hitler's many other enemies. Serbia is Judenfrei, the grotesque Nazi boast. These refugee friends of Peter and Mira's could speak of what had gone on in Yugoslavia before 1989 and understand that countries had layers of meaning beyond the handy media shorthand of tribal hatreds, ancient blood feuds. But her patients, the younger ones in their 30s or even 40s, the aristocrat, the morning Madonna, the American, of course, they knew so little there was one word, one name in particular, surfacing in the news now, and this word more than any other filled Mira with dread. Not one of the people around her knew the meanings of Kosovo, not even Peter. She had tried to explain it to him in analogies and stories, Hastings, Waterloo, Canterbury, all in one. But you could not take an Englishman to the battlefield of Kosovo Polje in 1389 from his Camden Town flat in 1998. You could not give him legend and myth and deep song-fed history and expect his heart to beat to them as yours did. To the newspaper readers around her, it was simply a name, yet another one, Kosovo, 
one more lyrical lilt that was beginning to creep into the news. Who knew what it meant this time? More battles? More bloodshed? More camps? Nobody knew. Kosovo, Mira, and that name were alone together, expecting the worst. So she does have one American patient, and um, this is the one. Most of the book is written in a very English voice, um, and then occasionally we hear from Jess. And so I'll read a little bit of um, a little bit of Jess. Sometimes Jess felt like canceling. It just seemed so pointless. Wasn't it all merely whining and yarning? What good could come finally of these twice-weekly encounters? They weren't going to go anywhere. We must stop meeting like this. On the other hand, who else would indulge Jess in rambling speculations and commentary in the way that Mira would? No one who wasn't paid to, frankly. Yes, Jess was talking a lot these days with her New York friend Lisa, who had a one-year-old, about Jess's own baby yearnings and what to do about them. For a regular old married person... Lisa was admirably tolerant of some of Jess's wilder flights of fancy. But Jess suspected that Lisa did not really believe Jess would go through with any of her schemes, thought she was just talking and joking, filling the international airwaves. The one thing I meant to mention ahead of time, so this is a character, another character who's dealing with the uh, desire to have a child. I swear to God, she said to Mira now, she hadn't canceled, something always drew her there, it was a compulsion. It's like I have a lost puppy in there, or, or, or no, a wolf, a hungry wolf howling. I don't know. People talk about biological clocks as though there's just some little metallic mechanism that issues this discrete beep, beep, beep at regular intervals, or, or a buzz, which maybe becomes louder after you tap it and put it on snooze. You know, oh, stop. Let me sleep another two years, will you? Wake me up then to see if I'm ready to have a baby? Just paused. This was quite a funny image, actually. Too good to waste or forget. She'd probably end up using it in her newspaper column. That was the other point of these sessions, she sometimes felt. Even when Mira said little, as today, the intelligence of her presence inspired Jess to work up some good material. Anyway, it's not like a clock, the womb. That's what I've been realizing. It's alive. I mean, this makes sense. We're animals. The womb is somehow alive and asking, demanding that you not ignore it anymore. You know, pay attention to me, goddammit. What am I here for? What do you think I've been waiting for all these years while you've frittered away your time working on your precious career and traveling to interesting places and embarking on a series of more or less monogamous relationships, none of which were ever deeply promising, and so were ultimately a waste of time, except in that they generated good copy for your wretched columns. Jess paused, but only for breath. I know this sounds crazy, and not just crazy, but a little as though I'm some mad fundamentalist anti-feminist zealot who thinks women's only job is to procreate. I mean, if you'd said exactly these words to me about ten years ago, five years ago maybe even, I'd probably have called you a reactionary or said, Jesus, what kind of weird throwback attitude is that? And here am I saying it myself. I've become this bizarre Stepford wife internally. Not that anyone knows that about me. Mira wouldn't understand Stepford Wife, probably, but Jess was on a roll now and could not interrupt for cultural translation. You know, because on the outside, on a good day, I still seem like a relatively hip Londoner with my big trainers and black trousers and my ability to drink with the rest of them and being smart and irreverent and all that. 
And secretly, underneath the Camden Town exterior, I'm slowly evolving into a fundamentalist Stepford one who'd give anything for a makeover and an hour or two shopping in Mothercare. There was another pause as the girl exhaled, evidently with some sense of, of satisfaction. Mira was not surprised. It had come out with considerable fluency, this rent, as the American herself would call it. Mira waited one beat, two, three. Jessica, she said then, her voice slow and thick, a coagulant, a break. The younger woman looked up, her eyes bright with the adrenaline of her oration. Oration is all very well, Mira wanted to tell her, but it won't protect you from anything. It is a false sheath, a thin wrap. It can become all too easily a shroud. Okay, so that's the serious book. <laughs> and I was going to read another very serious bit, but I think I'll move on to comedy. <laughs> um, uh, so actually, this is the book that Bob has already in introduced um, so that I don't really have to, <laughs> which is great. Um, this uh, morality tale, so this was written more recently and, as it happens, was published here in May before Delivery Room. Um, and as Bob explained, it's, it's a portrait of a marriage at a sort of uh, crisis point. And it, it's, it's also a, um, a study of, um, I think, triangles in relationships and how two people together often find a a third point to to um, to either make their relationship more difficult or bind them together. And in this particular story, the third point in the triangle is sometimes occupied by the husband's ex-wife, and is sometimes, uh, as Bob was saying, this sort of shadowy figure that the narrator develops um, an infatuation for. Um, just to give you a sense, the epigraph of the novel is. Um, so heavy is the chain of wedlock that it needs two to carry it and sometimes three. So um, I'm going to read a section. Um, so the, the narrator, who is never named throughout the tale, um, is living with her husband and uh, half time with her two stepsons. Um, and the relationship between, although they, this couple have been married now for about five years, the, the uh, husband and his ex-wife still have a very embittered and sort of engaged relationship. And this is a little scene um, describing that. The doorbell rang at an ungodly hour the next morning. Here are some ways you can be rousted from a deep sleep. Rosy-fingered dawn can tap gently on your eyelids, this in the day soon after you were married, and you can open your eyes to the possibility of renewed embraces with the amorous man lying next to you, assuming his young children aren't in the other room, having stayed overnight, in which case, lust or no lust, you'll probably feel too self-conscious. Or you can be a kid visiting your uncle who has a golden retriever named Special K who comes over to you on the spare couch where you are and starts licking your face with dog-chowy breath so you have to sit up and wipe the slobber off with your sleeve. Or it can be the ex-wife at the door ringing the doorbell insistently with an impatient rhythm that somehow falls neatly in with that of your own nascent throbbing headache. What the hell, my husband said to me, next to me. I bet his head was pounding too. 
He tossed off the covers in annoyance, but not before leaning over to give my hair a kiss. That was sweet. That was the old husband for a minute. All right, Jesus Christ, I'm coming, he bellowed. That was more the husband I was used to. He got up and padded down to the door. I crept over to the window and looked out to see Ryan and Alan, her stepsons, uh, waiting forlornly in the van. Seeing them, they didn't see me, I felt a pang, something indescribable in an unknown corner of my interior. Those kids, those boys. Well, it has to be here, I could hear Teresa hissing. I don't have it, and he needs it for the field trip. They specifically instructed the kids to bring something warm, like down, because the ferry boat ride will be cold. The fog won't have lifted. So come in and take a look for yourself, my husband said. This was a kind of a taunt on my husband's part. Ever since that tearing off the photos off the wall incident, Teresa had stuck by her policy of not crossing our threshold. We had cooties or germs, or perhaps we just had living proof that ours was a household like anyone else's. It might have distressed Teresa beyond repair to know that we did not inhabit a literal den of sin and depravity. There were Cheerios here, too. Lego, Monopoly. We were regular people, and her boys made their sometime home here, and this was not something she could allow herself to be aware of. I can't, I heard her say. You know that. If it's so important for you to get the damn code, come and get it. His footsteps headed toward the kitchen, source of caffeine and aspirin. The door was left open. I got dressed quickly in something basic, jeans and a sweatshirt, in case I had to make an appearance. Generally speaking, that would make things worse. Seeing me was, for Teresa, like encountering the ghost of marriage's past and rendered her quivering and furious. But I felt I ought to be prepared. I looked out of the window again. The boys were still in the van, still forlorn. He needs it for his field trip, the voice repeated loudly, as though the only problems we overcome here was my husband's hardness of hearing. We've got to get going. The bus leaves early from the school. Don't you? Okay, here it came. Don't you care about your son's well-being? Don't I care, my husband hollered. Even without coffee, yet he could manage a pretty good holler. He was going on the adrenaline of hatred at this point. I'll say one thing for Teresa. She knew how to rile him. That's something you pick up after you've been married to someone, I guess. Don't I care? What are you saying to me after everything I've done for those boys, in spite of every goddamn roadblock you've tried to put in my way? I saw the children squirm in the car, getting the gist, if not, I hope to God, the actual words. Then one boy said something to the other. There was a short conversation. I could see Ryan's face more clearly of the two. It was glum. Roadblocks, the familiar sneer of the righteous. I have just had to manage the best I can through all of this as a single mother in an extremely painful and difficult... Don't give me that single mother crap. These boys have a father. They have a stepmother. You are not the only... Don't you dare talk to me about her. That did it. One of them, the one that had drawn the short straw, Ryan, of course, got out of the van. Mom... I saw more than heard. Can we go? I'm going to be late for the field trip. It's okay. Someone will have a jacket I can borrow. Just wait in the goddamn van. I saw Ryan shrink back. Your father is making this very difficult. He's, I'm not doing a fucking thing. I'm telling you to come in and get the coat if you need it. It will not kill you to come into this condo. I shivered, and the air is cold, and it's poison. I reached for my husband's jacket hanging on the doorknob of our room and put it on. I shoved my hands deep in his pockets and felt the car keys nestling there, metal unlockers of speed and escape. 
What is this, some sick power play on your part? What are you doing to me here? I'm not doing anything. I'm just tired of you conveying to our children the idea that this house is somehow infected to the point where you cannot even set foot in here. They see this. They see you. Mom, I could hear Ryan now, just a minute, Teresa hurled at him as if the word were a blade. And at that moment, something in me snapped. The ability maybe to sit still and watch these two adults enact this horror before their offspring. I didn't mind, I have to admit, my husband letting Teresa have it. I suppose I haven't been able fully to disguise my lack of friendly feeling toward the woman, but not in front of the boys. For God's sake, wasn't that rule number one right at the beginning of the divorce manual, not in front of the children? I managed to get out of the condo safely. The element of surprise was in my favor. A moment later, I was on the sidewalk, opening my husband's car, saying with what calm I could muster, Come on, guys. I'll take you. Your mom and dad have some things to work out. Why don't you hop in? And I'm just going to read a last little coda and then open it up for questions. This is um, from the end of the novel. And um, without wanting to give it away, it does have a happy ending. Um, (laughs) And these two people, um, it's really a story of how two people learn to uh, see each other and listen to one another again. Um, The husband eventually acquires a name in this chapter. The narrator never does. Um, And he, it turns out, is called Alan, too, like his older son. And this is just a very brief passage from the last chapter. He reached for my hand in the rain. This was not Richard, big Richard, looking ahead and feeling cheerful, not knowing me but loving me, mostly on the basis of, I suppose, of my nice smile, which has over the years persuaded plenty of people of virtues I may or may not possess. No, no, this was my husband holding my hand now. Alan, the sturdy, gentlemanly man I had married, who had always been a man with a good heart and a nice hand at wordplay, some of the reasons why I had said yes in the first place. He never meant to shout, rant, cause harm. He had meant to be a decent sort, to take care, I knew that was how he had intended to be. I believed he was unaware of the person he had become. I'm sorry, he sighed from deep within, all the way in there. I'm so, so sorry. And there are sorries, and there are sorries. There are sorries that have implied within them, but it wasn't really my fault, or I I couldn't help it. There are sorries that are quick and snappy, meaning, okay, but let's not linger on all that. Can we move on now? There are sorries that are forced and sulky. Well, I'll say this because you're making me. Let it be recorded that I have said sorry, though damned if I really am. There are sorries that are issued only as part of a trade. Well, I may be sorry, but by all rights, you ought to be a hell of a lot sorrier. And now it's your turn, buddy. Let's hear it. There are sorries that really mean I hate you, or I'm kidding, or I didn't hear you. Or if it's one thing, if there's one thing I'm not, it's sorry. There are all those kinds of sorries, and probably some others I'm forgetting. Someone should make a wall chart. Then there is the real thing. Alan meant his sorry. I could feel remorse motoring through him, and the remorse was running on a fuel I had stopped hoping Alan would ever fill up on, namely comprehension. For the first time in five years, it seemed, there in the rain, he got it. He understood what had happened to me in the course of our marriage. It wasn't only he who had been inconvenienced by Teresa's rages and engagement. 
His current wife, the second one, oh, what's her name? Me. I'd had a lacerating time of it, too. If there had been something Alan and Teresa had in common for that whole five-year stretch, it sometimes seemed to me it was their ongoing failure to consider the one or three other people around who might be affected by their drama. It wasn't pretty, he acknowledged. No, I agreed. It was never pretty. There was a pause as we both recollected the lack of prettiness there had been. I'm sorry, he said again for emphasis. I squeezed his hand in reply. There's nothing to say back to the wholehearted apology. It's not a question of, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. Or even, thank you, though I would sometime later thank him. It's necessary to leave the space wide open around the words, first for them to gather their intent, their meaning. It was important in this instance to take a few long breaths of acceptance. So I did. I breathed. I held his hand. I made sure he knew I was with him. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, stunned in the silence. What were you working on? Um, a new book. <laughs> um, I'm researching. Um, I'm researching a, a longer novel that will be more in the complex, multi-charactered, more complicated structure vein than probably than the short, <laughs> more um, intensely personal vein. Um, and meanwhile, I'm, I mean, that's what I'm sort of researching. And meanwhile, I've got a very short and manageable project that I'm just trying to um, keep my brain active with. <laughs> so. Talking about the book, you said, just said kind of casually, the bombing of Belgrade made me think about yeah. amnesia. Oh, yes. But that has come and gone that way. I know, I know, I know. How did you, why Serbia? Well, so I was, as I mentioned, I was living in London in, in the 90s, and, um, and I actually did know two Serbs in London. And so um, I, I had the experience of the American character in that book, um, which was, I, you know, I was one of those sort of dumb people watching the news going, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know what all those countries were. You know, and, and, I, and the truth was, really, until I was researching this novel, I still was a bit hazy on sort of where Bosnia ended and, you know, Serbia began and what, you know. Um, and um, I think um, the other, I mean, so I, I knew a couple of Serbs, so I had some brush with um, this nationality, which it was really too when I was living there, was suddenly this very vilified nationality. And I suppose the other angle from my point of view as an American who's lived, you know, in Europe off and on, is, you know, what it's like to be in this nationality that is just despised as a nationality. It's, you know, it's something probably any American who's traveled more or less anywhere has encountered in some form, you know, where you're like, wait, I didn't, I'm not Ronald Reagan. I, you know, I didn't personally bomb Libya or I didn't, you know, really sanction the war in Iraq or whatever it is, you know, whatever you're representing. And so I kind of wanted to climb into that you know, how that would feel, particularly for a therapist. I mean, the, the particular ironies of that character is, you know, is there, that she's there, and, and she's a very, it, this didn't really emerge that much in the sections I read, but she's a very classically trained, you know, uh, therapist who reveals nothing about herself. So the comedy also in it, it at parts is how, what people project onto her 
either what they're projecting onto Serbia or, you know, at one point at the beginning that Jess doesn't even realize that she's Serbian, so she has this fond fantasy that she's maybe Czech and, like, is aligned with Milan Kundera and all these wonderful people that she discovers she's Serbian. I was like, oh. Um, so it gave me a lot of different things to play with. I did actually go to Belgrade um, when I was researching this book, and I, you know, there was something extraordinary about living through a period in which, you know, that was not the Second World War in which, you know, Europe and America was were bombing another European country. That was an extraordinary thing, which, as you say, has been largely, you know, sort of pushed aside by other news stories. Yeah. Uh, Gertrude Stein once admitted that she became a writer by living in France, mm-hmm. uh, that English became her language. Now, yes. Was there something of that nature hmm. uh, by living in London that you were able to... That's a great question, and I love that quote. I didn't know that quote from Stein or that description of Stein. Um, it is true that when I was living in London and having my first books published, I was I was um, always imagining. You know, at that point, usually my fictions were you know set in California, so I was imagining California specifically from a distance, and yes, probably hearing the American voice mostly, you know, in my own head, <laughs> not so much out on the street. And the same was true. I wrote The Delivery Room after I moved back here. You know, so um, th- this is really the only fiction I've written that's completely set in England, and it's a, it's a very English voice. And so it, pre- people are sometimes a little confused by that because the, not just the dialogue, but the actual narration is pretty English. So I think it is true that I can hear. I, I enjoy hearing and reconstituting the other voice when I'm in the other place. Um, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting. And I think because I grew up partly in England, I I developed an ear pretty early on for which which was which language, even though they're supposed to be the same thing. Um, yes, <laughs> sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the question is. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's the plant in the audience. Um, well, the point of the people in the sessions is not to create comedy, right? Because the patient is, you know, working out the difficulty of her life, and the therapist is trying in whatever way to help the patient through. Um, uh, one of the I don't think this is a sort of... Well, there are only a few moments where this is a flat-out comedy. It's more of an irony throughout. I mean, the other thing about her being Serbian is that... At, at, so the novel takes the characters up to the spring of 99 when the bombs started dropping. And, um, you know, at one point, Jess comes to the session with some, you know, for her, very intense personal problem with a guy she's dating, and she just can hardly wait to tell Mira about it. But it happens that, you know, that NATO just started bombing, you know, Belgrade the day before... And so she sort of feels like she must make some vague gesture in that direction. And, and, the, and the kind of the contrast between, you know, her like, oh, this guy, you'd never believe what happened, you know, and the fact that this woman, you know, who she's talking to for help is dealing with a family that's under threat in her home country. You know, those contrasts, um, I mean, as I say, there's a, there is a comedy in that, and there's also, a, in a sense, there's also a tragedy in it, and, and also something pretty recognizable, I think, probably to any of us who struggle with how to measure one kind of pain or discomfort in life against, you know, all the other things that are going on in other parts of the world or other parts of our own country. So, yeah. So the two novels have such different tones, and I was thinking about the process of writing and how it might differ 
because of the tones? Do you remember, I mean, you wrote them both some time ago. Do you remember yeah. a difference in the way that you would approach the work each day? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I really did write them differently. Um, something I've mentioned a few times about Morality Tale, um, which is just a curious thing that I've never done before, is I, I, I literally wrote this book sort of in the middle of the night, or this, in the middle of the night, <laughs> whatever the plural of that is. Um, I got up at four in the morning and would write every morning before you know the children got up and our family life started. Um, and I think that quiet made it easier for me to hear. It's a, it's a very voice-driven novel. So it's a first-person novel, and the character's voice and her humor very much shapes and um, structures the story. And so I think that I could hear that voice better. And I, Whereas because this was a more distant, you know, weren't we talking about omniscient narration the other day? I think that um, this was more the kind of novel, partly because of its length and because of the different things required at different parts of it. It was more the kind of novel where you show up, like the job at the office, where you show up in the morning and like, all right, today, what do I got today, Bob? Well, today, today you got to write the scene about, oh, all right, I'll write that scene today. You know, um, not you, Bob, just, you know, another Bob. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, that's, it is true. And it's funny because, you know, when, in looking, when, you know, when you were asking me about what's the next project, it's funny, if I, because they had different ways of, you know, literally, if I had different ways of writing them, it's sort of like, well, which one should I set myself up for next? You know, should I do the four in the morning thing, or should I do the reporting into the office thing? You know, I don't know. I'm not sure. He's asking. He is asking. Again. Oh, but there's somebody. Yes, why don't you go ahead, please. <laughs> Take a turn. Why did you not Well, um, she... There are a couple of reasons for it. It, it, it is it is it is a tale um, in in the, what that meant. Or it meant a few different things to me. I sort of wanted her to be a kind of every woman in a sense, you know. Um, and this novel, very much in contrast to the delivery of morality tale, is not a novel where each character has a history and parents and schooling and you know clothes that you're described. You know, it's very much. These there's sort of elements in a kind of you know it's almost like a a play or something you know so I wanted her to be um, I mean not generic she's not generic because her voice defines her um, but I wanted her to be this um, uh, I don't know not to have that specificity in a way the other thing about it is that it's also it's also reflective of how she sees herself I mean how she doesn't feel seen and and that. You know, even though I'd like to think that's different at the end, I still, <laughs> she's still not seen enough for us to know who she is. Um, the reviewers tended to give her a name, which was, there's a nickname referred to that her stepsons call her, but for me, that isn't her name. I mean, for me, she really does not have a name. Um, and it's just because she really has not been, you know, she, all she has is her voice in a way. Um, so that was sort of important to me. But I, but I did want her at the end to see him and to kind of be like, oh yeah, that's right, it's Alan. <laughs> That's who it is. He's not just the husband. All up to then, he's the husband, the husband, her husband, her husband, her husband. And the guy she has a crush on is Richard. And he, you know, and so he's a person who she's, you know, and the, guy, the other guy is just the husband. And then finally at the end, he kind of comes back into being somebody, not just a husband, not just a role, but a person again. So, yeah. Is, is that connected? Did you, the, the, the same character had some painful trauma before yes. she met. Un, unnamed. Yes. Yeah, that's right. In my mind, um, I think I wanted to leave that um, 
a, a little, un, I, I wanted to leave that undefined. And it's not like, well, I know what, it, I mean, I do have an idea of what it is, but, um, but it isn't like I thought about it and thought, oh, I won't say. Um, it's funny actually talking about this because um, the first book I wrote, actually, although it was came out, came out here second, the Ten Women Who Shook the World, those are, those are sort of tales. Those stories are not conventional short stories. They're really tales. And quite a few of those narrators are unnamed. And there's one story in which there's this terrible thing that somebody did to a dog that his friend finds unforgivable, and you never find out what it is that he did to the dog. And I've had people like, do you know, what did he do to the dog? You know, and, you know, again, I sort of, you know, I have my idea of what I think he probably did to the dog, but I didn't want, you know, I wanted it to be, you know, that thing in the corner you can't see. Is that a question or a, a wrapping up <laughs> gesture? Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.